Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to start, and uh, it's, uh, it's Parsha Sra'eh, and there's so much in here, and the reason why I bring up the, the name of the Parsha is because it's uh, personally meaningful to me. This is um, an anniversary of sorts, uh, well, not of sorts, it, it, it's a, an actual anniversary for me, and I just want to just, just tell you about that just on a personal note before we start. Um, there's, uh, you know, we, we have... Um, we have in 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 the in the Jewish year one of the great holidays. I, I think probably my favorite holiday is Purim, and um, so Purim everybody knows is a is a great salvation for the Jewish people. Actually, you know, it's a a huge miracle happened. We were supposed to get wiped out. Uh, it was going to be pretty much mass annihilation, and we got saved. And it's. God did a, a miracle for us, a, a different type of miracle. You know, we're, we're, when we think of miracles, we're used to thinking of miracles like in the parting of the Red Sea mode. So, the type of miracle that Hashem did for us in the Purim story was a very interesting type of miracle. Um, sort of like uh, undercover supernatural. Um, and the way the B'nai Yisachar describes it, it's like a really, it's, it's worth thinking about. Um, it's a really interesting explanation. So this is, I guess, in the 1800s. So this is before airplanes, before cars, everything like that. So he, he says, I'm going to describe to you the, the miracle of Purim. He says, and the nature, of the, the nature of what type of miracle it was. He says, imagine a person is on their deathbed, very sick, extremely sick. And the doctor looks at the person and says, you know something? You can be saved, but you, you, you will need a special type of medication. But this, this type of medicine, we have to use like an herb, like a medicine that can only be found in China. Now, okay, now imagine Poland, right? So how are you going to get in, a, in a, like a very short period of time for this sick person a medicine from China? Because you've got to take, you know, there's an expression, uh, a slow boat to China. You don't hear it too often these days. But it's uh, from a previous generation. But in other words, when, it, when people wanted to talk about something that takes a long time, taking a boat to China, that, that takes a long time. So, so how are you going to get this herb from China there and back in time to save this person, right? So basically, the guy's a goner. That's, that's, the, that's the unfortunate bottom line to, this, to his uh, medical condition. All of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. Someone runs in and says, a boat from China just pulled in. And they've got the herb on the boat. And so they run in and they bring the herb and the guy gets saved. Now, what kind of miracle is that? Well, you say, well, the boat was coming the whole time and God didn't just snap his fingers and all of a sudden there was a boat there that wasn't sailing in there anyway. So all of a sudden you start to scratch your head. You know it's a miracle, but it's a different kind of miracle. It's a miracle channeled through the forces of nature. And of course, the forces of nature are not independent of God. It's all one force. So it's, it's, it's an open miracle. But at the same time, it's, it's not an open miracle. It seems to be, quote-unquote, normal. The reason why I bring up that whole thing is because there's a concept in halacha of not just a, a uh, of, of the Purim holiday itself, but of someone having a personal Purim. If anyone experiences a personal salvation in their life, that's called in halacha, in Jewish law, a personal Purim. And you're supposed to celebrate it every year. So I'm marking the occasion right now of a personal Purim in my life, which I observe every year, which is... Um, uh, when I started keeping Shabbos at work, they wanted to fire me. They told me I'd never work in television again, and like it was all going to fall apart, and then, and then it worked out. So, so thank God. Thank God. Now, I want to tell you, um, I want to tell you one aspect to that. Um, and this is in the category of just how precisely God runs the world. And how awesome that is. And we're going to start to talk about this more in general. We're going to get into certain psukim and we're going to talk about the nature of tests and how God runs the world and the core of our relationship with him. Um, 
But I just want to tell you this one story. It kind of fits into the uh, poor miracle story that I just told you with the medicine in China because it was slow. But you'll see what I'm talking about in a moment. Um, I guess I was 24 when I, when I started keeping Shabbos. And, um, and uh, you know, once, once I started doing that, I started thinking, well, you know, I'd like to get married. And, uh, and I remembered a teaching, or I, I had heard a teaching. I heard it in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It goes like this, that um, Sunday has a soulmate, and it's Monday, and Tuesday has a soulmate, and it's Wednesday, and Thursday has a soulmate, and it's Friday. Well, that leaves Shabbos out in the cold, right? Because there's seven days. That's an odd number. Every day has a soulmate, but what's Shabbos' soulmate? So Shabbos goes before Hashem and says, who will be my soulmate? And God says back to Shabbos, your soulmate will be the Jewish people. And so Shabbos and the Jewish people are soulmates. Um, by the way, I heard something very, very beautiful on that subject from my brother-in-law. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the beautiful things that we, we do at Friday night by the Shabbos table, we sing Shalom Aleichem. And there are different um, verses. We welcome the angels and, um, and there's a whole kind of like order to that. And then the last ver- verse is Seitzchem Shalom. We send the angels away. And it's kind of strange, because it's sort of like, here are these angels that have come into your house, and it's sort of, you know, you're singing, and it's like this big sort of like raising up in spirituality, and then you kick them out at the end of the song. You're like, okay. (laughs) All right, well, seriously, we're really glad you stopped by, and, you know. (laughs) And... uh, we, we usher them out. So what's the idea? You know, you'd, you'd think that it would be the opposite. It's sort of like, you know, just sort of like we, we'd usher them into our closet and then lock them in like you're not going anywhere. You know, it's the opposite. We, 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 we essentially escort the angels out. So what's the idea there? So I heard this beautiful idea that um, because Shabbos and the Jewish people are soulmates, you see, you have a concept a lot of people don't know this about weddings, which is people think that, um, you know, under the chuppah, you're offici- at the end of the chuppah part of the wedding ceremony, you're officially married, right? Um, it's not true. The official part of the marriage, when you're officially, officially married, is when the two of you are together alone in what's called the, the yichud room. And what's interesting about that is you have to be publicly alone. In other words... Once, because we have laws, they're called the, the, the laws of Yichud, which is that a single man and a single woman aren't supposed to be behind closed doors together. And, um, and so the official final sealing of the marriage is when in the eye of the entire community and public, the two are beyond, behind closed doors together and it's 100% fine. Because it's appropriate that they should be together behind closed doors. So, so there's a, um, a special aloneness, a special privacy, which is appropriate among soulmates. And so now let's go back to the Shabbos table. Why are we asking the angels to leave? Because Shabbos and the Jewish people are soulmates. And so the Shabbos table, that's like the Yichud room. And it's sort of like angels, you know, um, we sort of need our privacy right now. Us and Shabbos, we're together right now, so, you know, if you just, uh, you know, give us a little alone time, as is appropriate among soulmates. So, so now, let's get back to this, um, let's get back to this idea. Um, so, I learned this teaching that Shabbos and the Jewish people are soulmates, and I had just gone through this thing where, you know, I had had this test like, you know, am I going to keep Shabbos? And, and uh, you know, the odds were, you know, a lot of pressure was stacking up around me um, not to do it, but thank God uh, I did do it. And I prayed to God. I said, you know, God, just like 
Shabbos has a soulmate, it's the Jewish people. Maybe in the merit of my keeping Shabbos, maybe you'll grant me my soulmate. That, I prayed that. And um, now that, 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 that happened when they wanted to fire me and everything like that. That happened on August 25th. And I didn't realize this for many, many years after I was married. But I was married on August 25th. And I promise you, I, that was not intentional. That was, in fact, it was something that I only realized about 10 or 15 years after it happened. So how exactly is God running the world? You know, and this is one of the heartbreaking things is that we don't even know if God is there at all. Meanwhile, not only is he there, but he's running the world with the utmost precision. The utmost precision. And the reason why I sort of like am reflecting on this slow boat to China was I made that prayer and exactly four years later it was answered. (laughs) And I was doing a lot of dominating during those years. And I know there are people who have been waiting longer than that. I know a lot of people would say, four years, easy. You know, I'll lie, it should only be four years. But for me in the moment, that was a long time. Um... So, so God tests us. And there's a Pasuk in the Torah. It says that I'm testing you so that it should be good for you in the end. It's a really interesting Pasuk. It's in the Chumash, it's in Devarim. So that it will be good for you in the end. You know, the word for test, it's it, 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 it relates to the world to of a banner. A banner is something that's raised up. And, um, you know, you see, you see, we're deeply suspicious of tests. And it puts a real edge on our relationship in a negative way, unless we understand it properly. It puts a real edge, a real tension in terms of our relationship with God. Because we want to know, God, why are you testing us? What do you need to test us for? Like, why? You you know me. You made me. You know if I can pass it or not. What's the point? It's hard. It's uncomfortable. And so, the reason why I sort of like really like this idea, the, the fact that it's this same word as this to raise up a banner, raising up, is because we understand that the core aspect of being tested is that God is actually lifting us up. He's raising us up. The dynamic of a test often is that we feel like we're being put down. We're being oppressed. But that's not the word. The word is, I'm raising you up makes a very big difference because we see that God's intentions are good. And God even says it himself. He says, I'm testing you so that it will be good for you in the end. But sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes we have to wait to see, to see that good. So now, I want to go through the word test in the Chumash and give an overview of um, some of the concepts and some of the things, because it's, it's good for us to know. So, believe it or not, the very first time the word test is given, used in the entire Torah, is in the Akedah, in the binding of Isaac. Hashem says to Abraham, I'm going to test you. That's the very first time it's used. Okay. Then it's used again by the water. After the sea splits, you know, we had a whole talk on this a, a while back, if you remember. One of the strangest things, the Red Sea splits, God shows his mastery over all of creation, and he uses the vehicle of water to show his mastery over all of creation. And then what happens? We travel three days without water. <laughs> Very strange, right? Very ironic. 
And we complain and we get all stressed out and we go to Moshe and we say, where's the water? And, um, and the word test is given there. So the test seems to be, how are we going to ask when we need something? In other words, in other words the, the legitimacy of the need itself was never questioned. We did need the water. It was appropriate for us to want the water. But the question was, when we are in a place of need, how are we going to address our need? So, first of all, we went to Moshe. We didn't go straight to God. That in itself is interesting. Second of all, we really complained and we got really angry. So that's really striking. Now, the next time it's used is with the instance of the man. This is the bread from heaven. And um, it's ironic also because in English we have an expression, if something fantastic happens out of nowhere, we say, oh, it's like manna from heaven. And yet the very first time the man, the man is talked about in the Torah, God says, I'm going to send you down manna in order to test you. It's a whole different dynamic. So what was the test of manna? Mana was, God is going to give us each day's needs in its time. One day at a time, God is going to provide for our needs. And that's going to be the test to see if we believe that God is going to continue to provide for us. Now, let's contrast these two incidents because you'll see two different sides of the same coin. So give you a big insight into life, all right? The first time we're tested with water. We don't have water. We want water. The second time, the nature of the test is we have the mana, but are we going to still have the mana? In other words, listen to the precariousness of life and the level of insecurity that's built into human existence. When you don't have it, you need it. When you have it, am I still going to have it? It's this double-edged thing. God is testing us. It's 360. So, so now we get to the headquarters of tests in the Torah. Now, believe it or not, there's a Pasuk in Devarim. It's chapter 6, verse 16. And in this one Pasuk, the word for test is used two or three times in one Pasuk. It's the only Pasuk like this in the whole Chumash, in the whole five books. The only Pasuk where it's used twice, and then actually you can even argue it's used three times. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it in one moment. Well, after the instance of the mana, there's another, there's another instance with the water, Okay. And this is the incident where Moshe hits the rock and the water comes out and this was the good one. Later on in Bamidbar, Moshe is supposed to only speak to the rock and not hit it, but he hits it and we all know what happened there. But this is the instance where God actually tells him to hit the rock and he hits the rock and the water comes out. But um, it's called Maser Umariba and it says that we tested God there and, and what was the nature of the test? Now listen to this, because now we're going to go into more depth. It's going to get deeper now, okay? It said, we, we question, God, are you with us or not? Now, the reason why I bring that up as sort of like the capital of tests, we said, God, are you with us or not? That's kind of like the, that's kind of like the, that's the benchmark right there. Because this Pasuk in Devarim says, listen to this. It says, there's a commandment. You ready? You shall not test Hashem, your God, as you tested him at Masa. Now, the word Masa is a different form of the word test. It actually has the word test in there. That's a different verb form of the word test. So, so really, the, 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 the verse can be read... You are not to test God like you tested him in the place of testing. All right, so and it's a short Pusik, and basically every other word in that Pusik is the word test. And 
Again, what's significant is, is that Pesach, which says, don't test God the way you tested him, sends you back to this place, Masa, where, where we said, God, are you with us or not? So that really tells us, that really focuses us on this point that asking that question, are you with us or not, is going to be the core issue in our relationship with God. So now, let's go into more depth. You see, I'm going to tell you something that the Ramban says. And this is really, what I'm telling you right now is essential Judaism. This is like absolutely meat and potatoes Judaism. Okay? So really try to hone in and and hear this. Because this is central to our lives in this world. A lot of people are confused by the mitzvahs. Okay? And it's a very large subject, but I just want to address one aspect of it. You see, it says a lot of times in the Torah, do the mitzvahs and I'm going to send you blessing. Okay? And it's, it's pretty specific about that in several places. So we feel like, if I do the mitzvahs, I get blessing. And then, a stumbling block for many or all of us is when we are doing the mitzvahs to the best of our ability, and we don't feel as though we're getting blessing or our specific prayers are being answered. And then that throws the whole religion, the whole, everything turns upside down in our head and in our souls. There are even, I'm thinking of one group in particular, without naming any names, which really presents the mitzvahs as a form of magic. Mitzvahs equal magic. And if you do them in a particular way and think particular things, and it's, it's, it's presented as magic, essentially. I don't think they use that word, but this is the way the mitzvahs are presented. And this is really problematic. It's really, really, really problematic, okay? Because while we are promised blessing, God says, I'm testing you so that it will be good for you in the end. In other words, all of the tests are coming from a very, very, very good place. And this is God himself speaking. Okay? It may be, after we leave this world, we should all experience tremendous good and tova and bracha while we're alive. But there's definitely a school of thought. You should know that all rewards for blessing are reserved for us in the next world, in the coming world. You have to know that. You have to know that. You have to be mature. Okay? Okay. Now, now the thing is like this. What, what is the nature of that test that we did when we wanted water? We wanted to know, God, if I do your mitzvahs, are you going to do miracles for me? That's how the Ramban explains it. I'll say it again. God, if I do your mitzvahs, are you going to perform miracles for me? And you know what the answer is? The Ramban says, you know what? God doesn't perform miracles for everyone who asks him to do miracles. Well, that's a pretty important piece of information, isn't it? Just because you asked for a miracle doesn't mean you're going to get a miracle. And you know what? That doesn't mean God can't do the miracle, and that doesn't mean God is not God. God's God. God can do miracles. You want to do the miracle? You want a miracle right now? Sorry, not right now. And there is no contradiction at all in that sequence. No contradiction at all. Is God still good? 1,000% good. Is God still all-powerful? Absolutely all-powerful. Is God going, did God hear your prayer? He heard it. He heard it. He gave you the mouth to pray it. And he heard everything that you said. And is God going to do the miracle for you at that moment? No, sir. <laughs> nope. One of the most important things that we have to understand is, and again, this is like, this is a level of maturity and sophistication that everyone has to have. Because this idea that, Oh, I'm going, to do a mir- I'm going to do a mitzvah, and then I'm going to get my prayer answered right afterwards, right? That's, this, is, this, is a, this is babyish. I hate to say it. I hate to put it in those 
terms, but this is a very superficial, immature understanding of what Judaism is. Okay. So then, what is it? We have to understand that God has done all of the miracles. That's what Egypt was. Why are we constantly talking about getting out of Egypt? You know, every time you make Kiddush, Friday night, talking about Shabbos, and God took us out of Egypt, Pesach, God took us out of Egypt, Sukkot, God took us out of Egypt, Shavuos, God took us out of Egypt, every single day we say in the Shema, and God took us out of Egypt. Why are we talking about Egypt so much? Because God presented the fact that he can do miracles and does do miracles and that it's not an issue. He's the miracle maker. Every moment is a miracle. He already proved that he does miracles. I was talking with someone, very sophisticated person, and he said to me, how come there aren't miracles today? So I pointed to him, to this Ramban at the end of Parsha's bow, it's a famous Ramban, that says, God already proved that he did miracles. So that means every time he's asked, he has to do one? You know, can you imagine you meet Lahavdil, El of you meet Obama in the supermarket, and you say, you're such a good speaker, give me a great speech! You're so good! You get through big stadiums, you're so amazing! I-O-5! On, on health care. Give me a great speech, 40 minutes on health care. You know? It's like, what's Obama going to say back to you? You know what? No. <laughs> Sorry. No. And it's not because God is too busy, by the way. It might be because Obama is too busy. It's not because God is too busy. There's no concept. Or it's, God doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't get tired doesn't get preoccupied, he doesn't stop noticing, he doesn't stop looking. But there's no contradiction between him saying no, and him not being with us, and him not being able to do it, and him not being good for us. It's just something that we have to understand. So now I want to read you the words of the Ramban himself. Okay? Okay. So, okay. So the following verse after you should not test God like you test him at the, tested him at the place of testings, the next verse is, you shall surely observe the commandments of Hashem your God and his testimonies and his decrees that he commanded you. Okay, let me just read to you a little bit from here. Um, that... Uh, Okay, it's going to be good for you in the end. There's no necessity for testing God concerning the Torah and the commandments, for the truth has already been established for you, that the Torah is from him. May he be blessed. And similarly, regarding any word spoken by a prophet who has been tested and established as a true prophet through signs and wonders in accordance with the law of the Torah. Okay, but um, it's actually over here that I wanted to read. Sorry. Okay. So it says, on the Pasuk, don't test him the way you tested him at Masa. You should not say, is Hashem among us to do miracles for us? Or that we, or that we will have success when we serve him and be sated with bread and be well off when we observe his Torah. For this was the intent of the people there that if they would see that God would miraculously give them water from before him, they would follow him after him in the desert, and if not, they would abandon him. This was considered a great sin for them. For after they had ascertained through many signs and wonders that Moshe was the prophet of God, and that the word of his, in his mouth was true, it was no longer proper for, for, for them to do anything as a test. For it is not appropriate to serve God in the manner of a person who is unsure if he will benefit thereby, or in the matter of requesting a wonder, or in the matter of putting him to a test. For it is not God's will to do miracles for every person at every time. Nor is it appropriate to serve him 
on condition to receive a reward, but rather with the intent that it is possible. Okay, here's the, here's the line that I really wanted to focus you in on. Okay? So this is, you know, as they say that separates the men from the boys. All right? You ready? You ready to graduate to a, the next level in terms of your relationship with God? It's this line. Nor is it appropriate to serve him on condition to receive a war, reward, but rather with the intent that it is possible that a person will do the mitzvahs and that person will encounter suffering and tragedy despite his service of God and his following the ways of the Torah. Wow. You know, I don't think that they necessarily say that. It's like, okay, guys, we're going to learn about Judaism today. Judaism 101. Everyone sit down. We've got Simcha's Torah. It's so much fun. We've got Purim. It's so much fun. And everyone should know they may encounter suffering and tragedy. Even though they follow the ways of the Torah. What, what you're talking about is the difference between conditional faith and absolute faith. It has nothing to do with faith. This has nothing to do with faith. This is, I'm telling you, the way God runs the world. This is reality. This is reality. God asks us to do certain things because it's his world and we're his creations. And that's what it is. And God is good. And this is what it is. I want to tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories. Maybe I'll give you another aspect of what I'm talking about. I was once, um, my wife and I were once guests of a, a wealthy couple in New York City. And um, they really gave us the, the run of the uh, apartment. They gave us a key, and they told us, come and go whenever you like. And it was really very, very nice. It was in a nice neighborhood. And that Shabbos, they had a big Shabbos. And like I say, they, thank God they were, are well off, Kanainahara. And the Shabbos table was beautiful with silver and dishes and flowers and was really gorgeous, and the host was sitting at the head of the table, and um, is a very quiet person, and I was in a talkative mood, and in a good mood, so I was, you know, telling stories and jokes and making conversation and everything like that, I was doing a lot of the talking and everything like this, and at the end of the meal, I walked the guests to the door, and I thanked them for coming. <laughs> And the host, whose house it was, whose table I was sitting at, who paid for the entire thing, is standing quietly next to me. And it hit me in that moment. What a chutzpah. What a chutzpah. Here I am, a guest in this person's home, and I'm acting like the host. And then it came to me like my head spun. I said, Wow, here we are, guests in God's world, and we're acting like the hosts. We're guests. We're guests in this world. We're guests. Before the Kahanim went into the Beis Migdash, the Holy Temple, in order to do the holy service in the Holy Temple, they would wash their hands and feet. So listen to what the Ishbitzer Rebbe says. He says, why would they wash their hands and feet before they go in to do the service? In order to wash their hands of the notion, in order to cleanse themselves of the notion that God, I'm about to do something for you so that you should do something back for me. 
I heard Reb Shlomo say a similar thing about washing hands before bread. You know, bread in, 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 in Torah stands for sustenance. That's the symbol of livelihood. So we wash our hands before we eat bread. Listen to this beautiful kavana, this holy intention. You have in mind that you're washing your hands of the notion that the food that you're about to eat is coming from the work of your hands. You're washing yourself. You're cleansing yourself of that notion so that you can receive just directly from God. And I heard from Rabbi Wolfson that the gematria of al-nitilat yadayim is lechem min ha-shemayim, bread from heaven. So the blessing that we say, we're having in mind at that point that this is not because of the work that I just did, the food that I'm about to eat, but I'm receiving directly from you, God. And the Sephardim have a custom that when it comes to receiving the, the challah, the bread, the, the, the person at the head of the table who makes the blessing throws the bread to you. He doesn't hand the bread to you, because if I'm handing the bread for, to you, that means you're eating this because of the work of my hands. You're throwing it. means it's coming straight from God. And of course, the two chalas are compared very intentionally to the double portion of, man, of mana that came from the sky, the bread from heaven. And by the way, what was the blessing that the Jews made in the desert over the mana? Baruch Hashem Hamotzi lechem min hashamayim. God who brings forth bread from the heavens. Normally you say hamotzi lechem min haaretz. God who brings forth bread from the earth. But again, the kahanim wash themselves of this notion. I'm going to do for you. Now you do for me. God's the host. That's not what it is. That's not what it is. Do you see how in the most subtle but crucial way we have every opportunity to erect ourselves as the final authority? And if you don't do for me, God, because let's, let's just get a little more inside. Let's, let's, you know, sometimes you, someone says something but they haven't really expressed what they, what they really mean. So you've got to continue on with the words. Okay, God, I'm going to do this so that you should do this for me. What's, the, what's, what's not spoken there? And if you don't, I'm not going to do it. Now let's go a little bit further. Because if you don't, then what do I need you for? I'm very happy the way I am right now. Or I'll go and knock at the, you know, some other, some other house of worship, right? God forbid. Maybe they'll answer me. But we know because all the deep holy sources say the same thing. The core of idol worship. You think, you think that the core of idol worship is you're bowing down before this statue that statue doesn't have a mouth that can speak. It doesn't have ears that can hear. It doesn't have feet that can walk. Why are you bowing before that statue? Guys, it's not about the statue. When you bow before the statue, you're making yourself into a god. That's the whole point of idol worship. It's not about the statue itself. It's about making yourself into the final authority. Okay, so, so, you know, there's an interesting Pasuk. It says that Paro, you know, the Nile was a god for the Egyptians. And the Nile, you know, and it makes sense because the, the Nile would overflow and it would put this like very rich, it would be like the equivalent of fertilizer, this rich silt from the bottom of the ocean. It would spread it out on the farmlands and it would cause them to grow. So they were like, wow, the Nile is the, like the food god, basically, you know? And so Paro would go down and he would, you know, 
interact with denial. But the Pasuk says that he would, it says, it uses the word al, above. It says Paro put himself above denial. Which means that Paro wasn't, wasn't really going to denial to beseech it. In Paro's mind, he was the power. He was the power. You see, because anyone who has any sort of pagan relationship with something has multiple pagan relationships. And the reason why a person has multiple pagan relationships is because, listen, let's put it this way. All right, let me make it very, very simple. And this is the answer to your question. If you can fire God, <laughs> really, honestly, if, we can, if you can fire God, who was the boss all along? Right? So this is the whole nature, this is the whole nature of, of tests. God says, don't test me the way you tested me there. Because, <laughs> because, because I'm God, whether you like it or not. And whether I do a miracle for you or not. You see, I'm, 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 I'm keying in on this word faith. Because, you see, faith is really important, but I'm talking about, or I want to discuss a place beyond faith right now. Because, because faith ultimately, as strange as this is going to sound, because, you know, I can give you 20 talks on faith and tell you faith is the most important thing in the world and mean it with all my heart. But, on another level, faith is completely irrelevant. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I was talking about this with a person, I actually mentioned to you a few weeks back, but it's, it's, it's important to, to bring it up again. Imagine you walk into the kitchen, and someone's cooking chicken soup, right? And say the pot is covered. They're cooking chicken soup, the pot is covered. Now, you could say, I have faith that there's chicken soup in the pot. Right? But can I tell you something? It's either in the pot or it's not in the pot. Your faith that the chicken soup is in the pot has nothing to do with whether there's chicken soup in the pot or not. It's either in the pot or it's not in the pot. There's either a God or there isn't a God. If there's a God, then this is what it is. Whether you believe in him or not is ultimately irrelevant. Because there he is. So, to stretch the metaphor a little bit, if you're cooking chicken soup, you're going to smell the chicken soup. Even if you don't see it. So maybe I don't see God. And I'll give you another favorite Mushle for that in a moment. Maybe I don't see God. But if your eyes are open, you're seeing him, you're smelling the chicken soup, so to speak. You're seeing him absolutely everywhere. You're seeing him everywhere. You know, I once imagined a conversation between two fish. And one fish says to the other fish, do you believe in water? Right? Think about the question. <laughs> And the other fish says back, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. Right? It's like the biggest joke in the world, right? Meanwhile, they're completely surrounded by water. The water's keeping them alive every single moment. And they're going, is there water? I don't know. What do you think? Right? <laughs> Let's drink some more vodka. <laughs> we, we can discuss it some more. 
You know, God is, you know, it's a famous story from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Why do we close our eyes during Shema? Because there's some things that are so close to you, the only way you can see them is if you close your eyes altogether. You know, the, the Torah gives an example. We're wandering around in the desert. Okay? You ready for this? We're wandering around in the desert. There's a cloud that's going in front of us. Bread is coming down from heaven. There's water coming out of a rock. There's a cloud that's actually surrounding us. Alright? And we're wondering, because human beings can get used to absolutely anything. This is something that we all have to understand about ourselves. You know, I'll tell you, you want to hear a really horrendous dark version of this. One of this, I mean, it's, it's really awful. But just to give you an example... I think it was the movie, or the documentary rather, Shoah. You know, it's something like eight hours or something. It's very, very long by the French director. And um, they were talking to a Polish farmer. You ready for this? A Polish farmer who had the plot of land adjacent to Auschwitz. Right? You ready for that? Because someone must have had it, right? I mean, at a certain point, a gate went up and that was the end of Auschwitz, right? So someone's got to own the land next to it. Well, they talked to the guy who owned the land next to it. And they said to him, like, you know, what? You know, what? Just Actually, the amazing part of that movie is the long silences in it. He says a few words, and it's just long, long silences. So it's quite amazing. Anyway. So he said... They asked him something like, didn't you know what was going on? And he said, he said, um, he said, I heard the screams. And you can imagine, these are the screams from Auschwitz, right? He said, I heard the screams. He said, but at a certain point you get used to it. I got used to it. I mean, man, if you can get used to the screams coming out of Auschwitz... I mean, this is the, the opposite of the experience of the Jews in the desert. But the human capacity to get used to anything. So we asked, is God among us or not? And so they give an example. They say, you know what this is equivalent to? A father is carrying his son on his shoulders. So imagine you're the child on your father's shoulders. Father is carrying his child on his shoulders and is walking forward and the child sees someone walking toward them. And the child asks the person walking toward them, have you seen my father? I mean, we're being carried, right? We're being kept alive every single moment, right? So, so let's just kind of wrap it up here. God says, let's revisit this Pasuk. God says, don't test me the way you tested me at the place of testing. (laughs) Don't test me the way you tested me at at the place of testing. And what was the essence of the place of testing when we asked God, are you with us or not? And so what's the bottom line? The bottom line is, of course God is with us. Of course God is with us. And in every single situation, when we're tested, because remember, the very first test after the Akedah is we didn't have water for three days. Doesn't mean we're not tested. Doesn't mean that we're not put into a situation when we have needs. But when we have, when we have needs, right, the Akedah is the first, this is, this is the first in, in, in Shmos. Yeah. No, 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 it's okay. How are we going to ask God Tests are inevitable. You're going to get them. I don't wish them on you, but this is, this is the world. You're going to get them. How do we react when we get them? So the first thing that we have to not ask is God with us or not. Don't ask that. Don't ask that. The premise to all of life is God is with you. That's the premise to all of life. 
God is absolutely with you. Alright, so then, and then, starting from there, you can pray and you can beseech and you can ask, you can ask for more strength, you can ask that it should be quick, you can ask that whatever needs to be fixed, please God, let me just fix it and, and go ahead. But never put yourself into a situation where we have the chutzpah to fire God, so to speak. Because God's going, you're, fi- you're, you're kicking me out of your office? Who owns the office? <laughs> Who owns you? Right. Question. They, they didn't deny his existence. They just wanted something for themselves. Well, here's the point. I, I'm still not being clear. I apologize. Here's the point. The point is, is that our relationship with God has to be unconditional. It has to be unconditional. We can't set terms. We can pray and we can beseech and we can love and everything like that. But we can't set terms with God. Because once we do that, it, it shifts the relationship to a place that's not a real relationship anymore. And when we realize that, that you know, like, like I like to joke around, but it's, it's really true that if you fall, in Torah, if you fall off the wagon, you fall onto another wagon. There's no, there's no, there's no place where God isn't. So you're always on the wagon. Just which wagon? You're never off the wagon with God. And once we understand that, then we can just embrace all of all of life and all of existence. And we can just love, 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 love. And Hashem should bless us just with easy times. You know? This is, um, this is important to understand. This will make us stronger, better, holier, more sophisticated people. And, um, and it doesn't mean that God isn't blessing us constantly. And we should all just celebrate some chutz together. Yeah. Quick announcement.